Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is truly a treat. This is a guy I love, have known for a long time. Though, Seth, we ha- it's been far too long since we've seen one another in person. Uh, That's true. I think it was on a, <laughs> we were on a rooftop together about five years ago or four and a half years ago or something like that is the last time. Oh, man. We hung out, and there's some vine that exists of, of the, the two of us, but, but vine sadly doesn't exist. <laughs> Can anybody even find that? <laughs> I think it's somewhere. It exists somewhere. Like, we definitely did it. I remember it. You were funny. Um, my guest is Seth Green, who has, uh, you know, probably, if you're listening to this podcast, been famous for uh, as long as you've been uh, alive, unless you're my age, and then whatever. We were, like, in college when Radio Days came out, and Seth had already been working a long time uh, before that. And Seth uh, plays... Uh, Johnny Marbles in a movie Dave and I made called Knockaround Guys, and that's when we became pals. Uh, he killed it in that role, um, which was quite a different kind of a, a role for him. But Seth is also uh, a filmmaker. His new movie, first one as director of a feature, writer of the movie, it's called Changeland. Uh, he stars in it along with his pal, Brecken Myers. I want to ask you about that and um, about working with your pal and, and keeping this core group of creative uh, people together. Uh, and, you know, Seth's been in everything from Buffy, Vampire Slayer, to Austin Powers, to Entourage, famously, and um, has carved an incredible career for himself and is one of the most important um, voice artists in the world, too. His own show that he created and does hundreds of voices, Robot Chicken, is legendary. And he's also uh, one of the stars and has been for the whole time a family guy. So, Seth Green. Thanks for being on the moment. Um, it is my pleasure. I've told you before, I really love that you're doing this podcast and I've enjoyed uh, the conversations that I've gotten to listen to. Um, you, you have such a variety of, of different kinds of artists and you always discuss both you know, the sensational side of it, but also the practical side of it. And as somebody who loves to continue to learn, I really appreciate these kind of outlets. Well, you know, I've learned from you, Seth, and, and you know, Knockaround Guys was our second movie, our first as directors, and your professionalism, and there were certain things about the way you went about your business. You know, just even right now when you said the sensational side, sort of the exciting side, and then the pragmatic side. You know, you've had that ability to recognize both from an early age, and, and I think you've spent a lot of time figuring out what the right balance is, how much of that pragmatism to allow to rule it and how much to allow the artist in you to come out. Is it still, uh, because when you, when you try to thwart one or lean too heavy in the other, it can create pressures and make us all, right? So can you talk a little bit about that? Since as you brought it up, how you have found the balance in those things or whether it's still a struggle to balance those things? Um, I think it's it's always it's always an effort for me at least. Um, but I've I've recognized really early on, uh, or at least I had that presented to me at a very young age that you know there is the the work that goes into uh, designing and and executing whatever the magic trick is, and then there is the way that it has to appear for the benefit of the audience. And so I've always um, treasured my access to the behind the scenes and you know, the, the secret keepers of the entire process. Um, so, you know, you share the difficulties or the struggles with 
with other collaborators or, or other peers. And, you know, privately, you can talk about how do I go about doing this or what is the actual nuts and bolts of making this happen. But I also really appreciate um, concealing all of that for the benefit of the audience that just sits there and says, wow, if you've done it all correctly. But, but also, it seems to me that for a long time in your career, you shouldered more than your share of the burden. Um, that you were, I mean, I remember even on our movie, and, you know, maybe you were 30 years old or not even 30 years old. And it seemed to me you felt it was your personal responsibility to make the day go well. Whether if you were on set, <laughs> you wanted to, you wanted to play your character and you wanted to nail your scenes, right? And you did. But beyond that, you were treating it like a filmmaker, like a producer. You weren't the producer on the movie. You weren't a writer on the movie. But you had a kind of professionalism about you. And at times it seemed almost to me from the outside being a little bit older. Oh, yeah, you because you were in your mid-20s because I was 32 or something like that. Um, or 33. Yeah. So how did that... It seemed to me from from my vantage point like it weighed heavy on you. Like... This idea that you had to be a professional and you had to lift everybody up and you had to make sure everyone on the set was smiling and you had to make sure from the grips to it just seemed to me like I can't, and it worked by the way, it helped, but it seemed like it had a cost to you. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I definitely appreciate that observation. I, um, I have always felt like this should be fun. You know, um, acting and making movies especially has always been a passion of mine. And there is a real fun that comes along with it. But it also is um, a tremendous amount of hard work. And sometimes it just comes down to attitude or making everyone feel acknowledged and appreciated. I learned really young that everybody involved on whatever project is equally important from, you know, whoever is on camera to whoever is changing the coffee filters. If if any one person is not doing their job well or is not committed to the process, then the whole thing can sort of fall apart in, 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 uh, in slivers. And so I, I don't know that it ever weighed heavily on me, but I definitely recognize, especially when I'm performing, I mean, even more so if I'm, if I'm directing or producing, that, that I'm in a position to help make people feel acknowledged or help make people feel participatory. Um, And I just think that enhances the value of the entire project. Uh, So, so I, I I definitely uh, make a point to um, make everyone feel included. And and in a way it's selfishly setting the stage for myself to be able to do my best work and knowing that everything else is going to go all right. Certainly. But do you not feel like, um, like if you like some actors show up and it's important to them, they're nice to everybody. They're they're um, they're not they're not being dicks, but they protect their creative space first, and and they protect that part of themselves that's an artist first. And it 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 always seemed to me like you would, as I say, you you you're able to perform at at the highest level. But I always wondered, and we've talked about this a little bit then. If if the sort of um, if that professionalism and that determination to be the guy who makes sure it all is good, 
like made it hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like made it hard for you ever to just blow off steam and just to go like, fuck, uh, I'm in it. Because it, uh, I always wondered how you kept it up, how you kept it. Do you think it has to do with being a child actor that, that it was just ingrained in you? Um, or Maybe. did you find another way to manage the pressure? I don't know. I think I've just always loved the actual thing, you know, like I really love acting. I love being on yes. set. I love the, the whole, the whole process. And so because that's what satisfies me the most or what inspires me the most, it doesn't feel like a burden or a task yes. um, to be able to keep my energy up. It's, it's more that, you know, in between action and cut is when I feel <laughs> like my most true self. And so yes. uh, creating the conditions for myself all around that, that that's just part of the, the process. But, but, you know, with, with respect to other actors needing to keep their own personal space, everybody's got a different creative process. And since the bulk of my career has been in supporting roles, it's always been a, a fun puzzle for me to figure out what my co-stars or what my collaborators need, um, because I don't need a lot. I don't need a lot in that process. I do all of my work behind the scenes and then um, I just need everybody else to be doing their best work for, for, for me to really thrive. And so um, to that end, it's, it's less of a, um, you know, you know, a, a burden than it is just part of my process for uh, guaranteeing my own conditions. Sure. That makes total sense to me. I'm fascinated by what you just said that between action and cut is when you feel the most like you. Can you go a little further on that? <laughs> yeah, I love acting. Um, and there's, there's a point where all of my prep um, results in my ability to perform, you know, the, like the rubber meets the road and you're, you're flying at a speed that's incomprehensible. And that's, that's, my favorite, that's my favorite magic trick. And the thing that I feel the, the most confident in is um, dissecting a character uh, taking what the the writer has in, intended and then making that feel like a complete human being, and so when it's really working um, in between action and cut, yes, I'm technically aware of everything that's happening, but I'll get lost in the moment and feel like it's a true um, and honest expression because the the audience can see that. You know, when you're on film, you can't lie. I mean, you can fake it, but the audience can tell. So when I'm really in that state, I've done all my prep and my rehearsal and all of the work and it's just cameras rolling, they click the slate and call action. Like that's, that's when everything feels the most, um, like everything is vibrating at a harmonious frequency. <laughs> yes. I find that I was talking to Damien Lewis about this recently, about how there are these moments like you, you sweat and work for it and then sometimes if you're lucky and you do these things that we do for a living, you find that you're just flying. You're barely tethered. You're sort of hyper-present yet barely tethered to the earth. And I look up and I've written four pages and they're the four pages I'm not going to have to rewrite in the script because they happened, <laughs> right? They All that work and sweat led to that moment when something deep in my subconscious mind was expressing itself through the, these characters that we've created. And um, it sort of has that magic, the thing you're talking about. But it doesn't happen for me every time I sit down to write. Sometimes I'm using craft. Sometimes I'm using the experience that I have. And then uh, occasionally 
that moment of flying happens. Do you, do you find you can call that into being? Because for, for me, it, when I press on that and I try to call it into being, it, it's, it, it doesn't show, right? It shows when you're just, do, for me anyway, when I'm doing the work with regularity every day, writing, working, thinking, I'll be, like sort of grace will give me those moments of, uh, of yeah. feeling like I'm a fl- uh, you know, in the air flying. Yeah, it's a little, I know you practice meditation, so I can relate it to that. You'll, you'll go through this physical process over and over and over again, and the more consistent you are about it, the more familiar it becomes to get into that state, the less you're, you know, fighting with yourself or letting conditions yes. impede your ability to really connect. But um, it doesn't happen all the, the time. Um, but since I've been doing it so long, um, I definitely have acquired different craft skills that, that I can refer to, lean on to, to help me get into that state. So that and then you're, know, not, it, you're not worried it, it, then, actually. You're not, even if it's harder, the fear doesn't come in, which allows you to then drop in to that space. Exactly, exactly. And it is a lot of that. It's like fighting your own fear. It's arguing yourself out of your own insecurity in the moment. Anytime I've been on a set with, you know, a hundred person crew and some complicated effect and some complicated camera move and you just want to do it consistently enough that the director is going to be satisfied but there's all these technical things you can't consider it's like i've had to go through that process often enough that it's familiar to me and i know that if i can just keep my focus and i've done enough prep then i'll be able to to, to deliver in that it, it doesn't it doesn't always come it doesn't always feel that way <laughs> right but it's the target well i i would say one thing people don't understand, I've only mentioned this like once before, I think in the pod, but when I was in Michael Clayton, um, Tony Gilroy, who's you know the greatest director and, and writer, he asked me to play this part and knew that I was a professional in these other parts of it as a writer and director and producer. And so he sits me in this chair and it's a scene with George Clooney and I'm completely inside. I'm like, well, I've memorized the words. So I did that part. But... Uh, I'm completely nervous about the fact that I'm about to be in a scene with Clooney. This is before Clooney and I know each other. It's before Ocean's 13. And like a year before, we'd written the script. I'd, I'd spoken to him, but I didn't know him. And Tony comes over and he goes, hey, this is going to open the movie. It's a tracking shot. So when you can feel the uh, camera coming behind you, that's when, you know, the camera's on a dolly. When you... And I was like, dude, I can barely remember to look up when I'm supposed to speak. Like, I'm... <laughs> I'm not here as a director or producer. Like I have to move these poker chips around because it's a poker scene. I have to think I can't do any of it. I'm one moment away from passing out. And you guys have to do, <laughs> you know, yo, you've worked with day players, right? Who can't handle it. So you, you yeah. know how hard it is. And yet for you, the craft has just become so refined that that stuff doesn't present challenge to you. You're able to just flow. I'm, I- it is a it is a challenge, but it's a challenge that can be abated with practice, with rehearsal, with familiarity. You know, um, all the things that you're talking about with the camera, it's it's just choreography. It's it's if you're a musician, um, you get really refined at your own instrument, and then when you play with a group or a band or an orchestra, you you have to still be able to play your instrument to the best of your ability, even though you're allowing for the, yes. the spontaneity that comes with other people's harmony. It, because acting is the thing I've studied the most and put the most uh, hours into, um, it, it is the, the process that's the most familiar to me. And so every time I step onto a set or every time I prepare 
a role or a project. It's, it's with all of that education and forethought. Um, and so I don't have to reach for it, even though I will always have to work for it. Like it always takes, it always takes that process. You just have to go through it. There's no skipping it, no matter how accomplished you become. It's, it's the only way. Well, it's, it's like you, you say you, you wake up each day and you meditate and then you write and you commit to that process. And so that becomes familiar to you and you, you elevate each time. You know, if you're, if you're an, an, a physical artist that draws or paints, the more you connect with your own hands and connect your own brushes to the paper or the canvas, yes. the more familiar that process becomes, the more you can innovate within. Yes, that makes total sense to me. And, and I, I keep going back to the fact that, that you started this so, so young. H- how old were you when you got your first paying job? I was seven years old when I did a first commercial, but it was also the first audition that I went on. And I was so fucking hungry. I just, I, I felt, I, and it's a weird thing that I realize is not common because I had so many friends that I grew up with who, even when they were going to college, they didn't know what they wanted to do with their life. So I've always felt really fortunate that I had such purpose and, and drive and uh, like a certainty of my direction at such a young age because it's allowed me to to a course. And even when I thought it wasn't going to work, I reaffirmed my, my direction and just kept working harder. When did you think it wasn't going to work? Uh, several times, you know, as, as you evolve as an actor, if you, if you gain any success or any kind of familiarity that people will liken you to that role, whether it's the performance or yeah. the tone or just the physical way you look. And since I've been doing this since I was a little kid, when I turned 15, I just didn't look like the kid from radio days. And I didn't right. like the same character anymore. So kind of, I just didn't get cast in anything for a year. And I had to take it upon myself to apply some reinvention. I let my hair grow along. And instead of trying to play, you know, the sweet kid, I started playing the, the bad kid right. or the like troublemaking kid. Um, and the same thing happened into my 20s as I started looking different um, and being known more for comedy. That's why it was so important to me to get to do a movie like Knock Around Guys because of the subject matter, because of the tone, um, because of that character and because of the cast. It was like, it, it, I just, yes. it, you know, I wouldn't say that I was desperate, but I really wanted to explore other sides. I want to be able to play other things, but it was definitive for me to play this, sure. you know, borderline unlikable fuck up and try and make him sort of sympathetic. Yeah. Try to understand him, um, which you did really well. And, and Hey, I'm about to spoil something in a 20 year old movie people. So if you haven't seen it, <laughs> stop this now and go watch it. Cause I'm going to spoil something in it, but yeah, it's true. <laughs> Seth, your, your particular gift or one of your particular gifts is that in the scene where uh, Arthur Nascarella kills you in that movie, um, everybody in the theater just is so wrecked and not cause you're Seth Green and they loved you in other movies, but because you were Johnny Marbles. And even though this guy put his friends in peril and acted like an asshole, you allowed us in to understand at least what he thought he was doing and why. And, and, um, you know, we cared in that last moment for that character yeah we as an audience are incredibly invested in him, which is a really difficult thing to pull off. Oh, thanks. I, I love, you know, it's, it's movies like Mean Streets or, or State yes. of Grace where you've got 
a character who is the the guy who's basically created the problem for all of your heroes. And um, there's such a, a screw up. You, you just desperately wish for them to be able to get out of their own way. And I, I really saw this character as that kind of opportunity, a, a character that the audience would both be um, deeply sympathetic to, but also hate because he was the, the catalyst for all of the guy's uh, problems. I yeah, really, no, exactly really right. That. No. It's like my favorite magic trick, you know, is making that character not someone you deeply hate, but someone you're like, ah, shit, this guy. No, it's true. Why, it's why the, is he such a screw up? No, like Stevie in State of Grace versus in Pope of Greenwich Village, Eric Roberts, where you really don't care about, you know, you care about Eric Roberts' character in Pope, but like, mm. he's supposed to get fucked up when Stevie gets... Again, I'm spoiling thing, a 30-year-old movie. When Stevie gets <laughs> when Stevie gets killed in State of Grace, you know, John C. Riley, you really care, even though he by the rules of that world, he deserves it. But he imbues yeah. him with so much life and his hopes and dreams, even though the the words in the script and his actions might not have that, you see his hopes and dreams. And that's the thing that you brought to that part, um, which I think is really incredible, especially because at that time you were not just playing comedies, but you were playing quite different people. Uh, and, uh, and yet you were able to do this. I cannot wait for my Ancestry box to come back. Uh, I have been wanting to see these results, and they're on their way back to me, I think, and I, I, I can't wait to see it. Look, we're all here. We're all living in the present. We all value that. But I'll tell you, there's a lot that you get by understanding where you come from. And understanding your own history, the history of your family, the history of the world through the prism of who you and your ancestors are. And Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. Connects you to the place in the world where your story started using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestor journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. And look, to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree. So your ancestors become more than just a name. Ancestry has combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story with unique features that give a more complete picture about a person, like events that shaped them, how they made a living, and what they excelled in. Ancestry's unique features and record collections can give a more complete picture of people from your past, like the events that shaped them, how they made a living, even how long they attended school. It's so easy to get started. So get started. Go to Ancestry.com slash moment today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash moment for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash moment. I wanted to ask a question about the starting on the path so young. And, you know, you said the thing about how um, you would meet people at college, they wouldn't know what they'd want to do. But there is a freedom also in not knowing what you want to do. Uh, when you're 19 years old or 20 years old, uh, there's an open road that many open roads that you can choose to drive down. And uh, I, I, I've been sitting here when I was thinking about what I want to talk to you about. I, I, did, did you ever wonder about other possible paths? Did you ever stop and, and not because you felt you couldn't get ahead in, in the biz, right? You've always worked and because you've not only reinvented yourself, but you're willing to take creative risks, you've you know obviously found a way to make this work for you incredibly well. But did you ever have a moment where you were like, what else could I be? How else could I be living my life? Or has this always brought you enough satisfactions? 
Um, well, it, uh, yes, definitely. I, I had moments where I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to make a living doing this and I should consider something that's a little more steady. Um, I always loved to draw. And when I was, um, you know, 18 or 19 and my entry scores were so poor that I couldn't get into a, a college that would be meaningful. I, um, I thought about, oh, well, maybe I'll try and draw comics or, or pursue some kind of career in toys. I've always been fascinated by, uh, you know, action figures, both from a design and a production standpoint. So I thought about both of those things, but the truth is nothing gives me the same kind of fulfillment as performing. Um, and there really is nothing that that both turns me on and inspires me more than entertainment in whatever shape it takes. Like that really is the thing that I love the most. Um, and because I've been lucky enough to work so consistently, I was able to store some savings at a young age. And then I'm a really frugal person who is not um, out for fancy cars or fancy clothes. And so I've always just tried to budget myself in a modest way that allows me to take more creative risks, you know, to, to choose um, work that is not the most financially lucrative, but, but is going to be the most satisfying. Yes. But then also you, between chicken and family guy, you then found a way to find a very lucrative sort of, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know how that happened. I'm saying, like, you know, in the end that did like, it. like go ahead and buy yourself some clothes at this point, dude, you don't have to worry. You know what I mean? You've been on family, you've done 500 episodes of family. Oh, for guy. sure. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but you're saying you would set yourself up so that if an event like that didn't happen, because I'm fascinated by how people build artistic careers, like long artistic careers. And in fact, I had this question right now, which was like, how strategically did you build the career or did you follow your passion? And it seems to me like what you're saying is you built your life in a way that allowed you to follow your passion most of the time, that you wanted to yeah. organize the financial part so that the, the creative part wouldn't have to be mercenary most of the time. Is that right? Yeah, but it, it wasn't it wasn't that intentionally strategic. I just sort of looked up in my twenties, and I had been working my entire life, and had been smart with my money, and hadn't spent a lot, and so it gave me a little bit of an ability to um, never rest, but not feel uh, desperate or motivated by money. Um, and then I've just been really lucky. Like I, I love the work the most, so I really enjoy just getting to work consistently, and I've been. Uh, fortunate enough to be involved with projects that either made money or became successful enough that my salary could could become really um, stabilizing. Yes, and then did you did you then at least sort of like expand your footprint a little, or are you still scared that it's? Uh, this is an, an actual question of a child actor who has a lot of responsibilities. You know, parents who have to focus on on that. You having a support, you know, all that stuff. Did you? when you finally had the kind of commercial success that family guy allowed you to have, do, were you able to breathe a little bit and relax and be like, Hey, this is all going to be all right. Like I don't have to be this. I don't have to worry that much. Yeah, definitely. There, there is a, there is a, a reassurance that comes with some kind of financial stability. Um, and, and, you know, I'm always imagining that every show I'm working on is going to get canceled at some point. Cause that's the example that I've had. Um, I've been on, I've, I've done so many pilots in my career and I've done so many, uh, you know, uh, series orders to, to 12 
yes. <laughs> way more than, than have run like two seasons or multiple seasons. So I'm always sort of coming from that perspective of, okay, well, this is great while it's lasting, but I have to be prepared for it to, to disappear. But yes, being able to be smart about savings has definitely made me relax. It's made me, you know, not, not get complacent or not no, get lazy, of course but, not. but sort of continue to affirm that, that money is not the driver. Um, and I'm, and, and we're not going to lose the house, you know? Yeah. That's a big deal. No, that's <laughs> but a I do. I do keep my footprint small. I really do. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. It is. Well, because it's the kind of thing that allows you, like you just wrote and directed this movie Changeland that's coming out June 7th in theaters and on all cable on demand and iTunes. Um, and right, you have the freedom to say, I'm taking this period of time and I'm going to do a passion project with the creative community that I've built around myself. So talk a little bit of the decision yeah. to do that. And I find the movie, found the movie very touching and really fun to watch. Um, oh, tell, tell me what made you decide this is the time to because to, you'd been writing scripts for a long time you know i read one that was really good 15 years ago um so what made you figure out this is the moment i'm, I'm ready to start this work in, in earnest um well i was particularly inspired by a real vacation that i took with a buddy of mine to thailand and everything that we did from the way we were mistaken for a honeymooning couple to just the, the backdrops that we were experiencing, the, the, the kind of basic human experience that we were having, um, it all just felt like a movie. Um, I, love, I, love, I love pop culture, and I really love the things that human beings share, whether it's a concert or whether yes. it's a, uh, an island formation in the middle of the ocean that you know, millions of people visit annually. I like the stuff that brings us together because I love being uh, reminded that humanity is the same globally, save for a cultural overlay. And I was just really inspired while on this trip, um, everything felt like a flawless backdrop for a very simple story about real people. Um, I love movies like Sideways um, or Garden State or anything that Albert Brooks does that feels like just real people in a little bit of a heightened circumstance so that you sure. can tell a story, but, but mostly a, a human experience that anyone could have. Um, and so that's what it was. There was all this incredible scenery and having made a lot of independent films or working with a lot of first time directors, I, I walked around and took a lot of pictures and basically did a location scout. I was like, I don't know what this movie is, but there's a movie in here. And then I spent the next eight years writing six completely different drafts of it until I felt like I had something that was actually worth telling. Um, I knew that the location was spectacular and that it would be a great um, cinematic vacation for an audience, but I needed to construct a story that um, said something or at least, you know, posited a relationship that would be compelling over the course of 90 minutes. Um, But I wasn't setting out to cross the threshold of directing or cross the threshold of, you know, starring in a movie that I wrote, it it always such a matter of course. I don't, I don't think I'm even looking to take on any director for higher gigs, but I, I did really enjoy the experience of gathering a team together for a specific purpose. And then, you know, yielding this, this end result of a, a movie that audiences can share. 
Well, you'd, yeah, you'd also created a show before, more than one, you'd, you know, created a show that people loved before. You, you'd, you had to know that you were uh, an actor, but also a creator, someone who could write and, and create a world that would engage people, right? The Robot Chicken had to, yeah, it, it had to lead to, I, I'd imagine that the Robot Chicken success let you know that you weren't sort of like crazy to think you could do this. For, for sure. Um, everything that I'd done before I started Robot Chicken prepared me to be able to, you know, produce something or direct something. Um, and I got 15 years of practical experience in every one of those categories, uh, yes. running writer's room or, you know, tech meetings, figuring out how to produce 200 episodes right. of an animated show, which essentially shoots like cinema. Um, because, you know, you build everything or you sew everything or you, you light everything practically and then shoot it all with real shadows and whatnot. You just shoot it frame by frame. But all of that experience um, made me feel well prepared to, to be a first time feature director. In fact, because we uh, set up our shop it's almost seven years ago now and we have a bit of an infrastructure for producing uh, animation and, and live action stuff, I really felt confident in all these spaces. The best example of that is when we're out in the middle of the ocean on these boats and we're trying to shoot a horizon line and um, there's boats that we can't control sort of passing in the background and uh, the, the producers are talking about finding a new location and trying to beat the sun. And I was like, you know, guys, if we put the camera up about three more inches, I'll have a clean matte line to composite yes. here and I can, yes. I can paint out those boats without causing any trouble to the scene. And in fact, you know, that's two animators for one day and their day rate is going to be less than it would be for us to move this entire real crew and move these boats. So just that practical experience of being able to, you know, mathematically say we can solve this problem and it's not a problem. Um, and then also having the practical experience of everything going to shit before and still having to deliver yes. a show. Um, yes. you, you get the, the confidence that ah, this is just something that happens and people deal with this and people have been dealing with exactly this problem. So it's not so unsolvable. I mean, it makes it, it makes it far less terrifying. Well, that's huge and, and worth teasing out a little more just because something that whenever I mention this on Twitter, people react in such a great way, which is that whenever you see a finished work, as a as an artist, as someone who wants to do something, it always looks seamless in a way. It looks like, <laughs> you, you know, you're just like, well, how did they do that? God, and and you forget, even I forget. Like, no, no, they had days when it was when it seemed impossible, when everyone was throwing their hands up, when even on The Godfather, Coppola had days when it didn't. Uh, the the feeling he had in his head and what was happening on in front of him weren't the same, and he couldn't figure out why. As easy as it is to talk to you, Seth Green, let me just say talking about The New Yorker is just as, maybe even easier because uh, although I've known you for like 30 years, Seth, I've known The New Yorker for way longer. Look, we're talking about the best writing in America today, and there's no doubt about it. They publish the best writers. They hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Look, if you're interested in politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture, arts, fiction, food, humor, cartoons, 
you're going to not only read about that stuff, but you're going to read about it in a way that's elevating, that's going to give you insights that you never had before, that's going to help you connect the dots. And in this, in this world where like we are, it, the culture has expanded so much. There are so many corners of it. The New Yorker has an incredible way of telling the story about all of it, how it's all unified. They go deep and they go wide. I mean, you're talking about people who write for The New Yorker like Ronan Farrow, Gia Tolentino, my buddy Helen Rosner, who's an incredible food writer and also writes about the culture. And I mean, this offer is just too good to pass up. 12 weeks for just six bucks. It's regularly 12 bucks, plus the New Yorker tote bag. You get home delivery of the print edition, unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. You get access to our apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. But get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks plus the exclusive tote. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. My listeners save 50% when they enter moment. Read The New Yorker. You have to read The New Yorker. I legitimately read The New Yorker every issue. Read The New Yorker. I understand you learned by doing. What was your approach to those days? How did you stop yourself from going through the cycle of panic before solving it? Or, or are you just able to cycle <laughs> through the panic very quickly? Maybe a little bit of both. I both, um, <laughs> you know, refuse the, the possibility that panic could set in. And also I recognize that panic is inevitable. And I say, well, okay, well, this is just the panic space and I'm going to move through this. It, it really is just, I've had so much experience with um, working through it, that the reality of getting to the other side feels more uh, present. You know, it's yes. it's like I'm not I'm 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 never going to be convinced that it's impossible again because I've seen so many um, examples of people just doing the work and getting to the other side of it. It, it. The 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 best way for me to articulate that is I recut this movie for months. Um, I, I spent so much time just completely rejiggering it yeah. because, you know, I've been told over and over again, there's the three movies you make. There's the movie you write, which physically on the page needs to um, get a reader invested. They need to understand what you're saying and, and it needs to be text-based either with dialogue or with stage direction. Otherwise the reader can't grasp the experience you're trying to articulate. And then the second movie you make is on set because things happen that, that are, you never anticipate you get this this extra alchemy of your performers of the, the the location of you know what just happens and what you have to work around and so you you make decisions on set that make the movie feel like an entirely different movie than what you set out to write and then when you get into editing oh yeah it's a whole other movie it's a completely different thing and and even though i can say um with certainty that what i set out to write what I meant to convey is, is absolutely in the final product. I had so many different stages where I felt like I had failed because the audience, the intended audience, either the reader or um, yes. the viewer, they weren't getting what I intended. And I, I had to get over the combative instinct to just say, no, no, you don't get it. It's, uh, it's so hard. Oh my God. Yeah. It's and, so hard. Yeah. But at the end of the, at the end of the day, I, I, I had to look at the guy. I had a screening with my agents and um, it just didn't play. It just didn't play. And I felt like I'd done all the right work and then I'm watching their reactions and I'm listening to their responses. And I, I had to just accept that I had not done it right. I had just not done it right. And I wound up going back in 
Um, I got a pickup shot. Um, I added some music and I cut almost 10 minutes. It's big. That's big. That's big. And that's what the movie. Yeah. But you, you know, you know that man, you write something and you're like, Oh, this line is what the movie's about. This, this line, this scene, this moment, this is the movie. If I cut this, what am I doing? And uh, I had been told early on that you have to be, savage. You have to be willing to cut your friend's cameo. You have to be willing to um, cut the line of dialogue that inspired the entire piece because it might just not need it anymore. That's correct. And the, the, the more I did that, the more I was able to really do it for the audience. What you later learn is you only put your friend in a cameo you know you can't cut. <laughs> That's what you learn there after you've so made one. After you've made one movie. <laughs> you learn where you can put your friends and where you can't because, uh, well, the, the smartest thing that I did was, was cast all of my friends in roles that I knew they would accomplish well and write them all roles that I knew would play on all their strengths. Well, I want to talk about this because <laughs> one thing I found incredibly touching Seth was that you cast Bracken in, in this part. And mm. uh, well, for a lot of reasons, you know, uh, because even, 20 years ago, you were talking about Brecken and you were talking about the joy you get out of working with him and your friendship. And it's, you know, it's ups and downs, it's intensity, the how alive it has always been in your life. And then for you to put him in this movie felt to me like, there, I don't, it just felt, there something about that felt very right to me. When I saw him on screen, mm -hmm. I was like, yes, this is Seth's exactly who he says that he is. And so what, what went into thinking about that for you? Um, because <laughs> you could have cast anybody in that part and Brecken's fantastic. Uh, but he's not uh, the most famous person you could have put in that part, right? He's famous, but yeah. he's not the most famous person. He's not really adding money or box office to the movie. He's just really great for the part and the chemistry the two of you have from being friends for so long and having this really alive relationship with one another pays off. But I'm wondering if you were worried about directing him. I'm wondering if just about the whole thing, uh, did you write it for him? And then even if yeah. you did, did you then ever have a moment where you were like, is this going to fuck our friendship up? I definitely um, had that awareness of yes. wanting to make sure all of my friends were taken care of, that uh, the flights went well, that yes. you know the, their housing was correct, that the conditions were such. But I also warned everybody in advance that this wasn't a movie where we were going to have trailers because we're filming sure. on remote islands and boats. Sure. And so it's just not possible. Um, but, but with casting him, I, I, I absolutely wrote the part for him because when I was thinking about what a fun adventure between friends would be. Um, Breck and I have worked together so much. I know our chemistry is great together. I know that um, in the process of filming that we enhance one another. And I thought that was most important for the movie itself, that to convey all of these ideas or emotions that I wanted the movie to have, it, it was critical to surround myself with this group of people. And yeah, it, it inherently makes it a smaller film because I'm not uh, casting for uh, marquee value or um, anything like that. But we were we were lucky enough to 
get a financier that was less concerned with those specifics and only needed certain boxes checked to satisfy the money. And then also it's shooting it for as little as possible so that you get the leeway with who you want to cast or how you want to do it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's part of why I'm a little hesitant to, to direct for hire just because I know that the conditions would be such, it'd be harder for me as a filmmaker to guarantee the result. But, but casting this the way that I did, um, was just that for me, it's, it's confidence in all of these participants, all of these extra elements that in the end it would yield the result uh, that I was going for. So that if anybody at least watches the movie, even if they, they don't like it, they'll at least feel what I intended. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then when you showed up, I mean, you're there prepping when Brecken shows up, does it just also feel to you like, okay, I'm, I'm safe in a certain way. Um, um, yeah. I'm here, yeah. but I'm with my guy. Yeah, and that, that was it. With, with everyone in the cast, it's like they made me feel safer. They made me feel more confident because I knew, I knew the measure of each of these actors and even, even Claire. I know how everyone's going to prepare. Well, of course. I know what their, what their methodology is on set. I know our rapport, um, and it, it made it, it just made it that much. But easier what about having to direct the two of them, two people, two of the people you're the closest to in the <laughs> world? Uh, you know, right? I mean, because that's also that can be awesome to have that kind of shorthand in life. On the other hand, if you turn to Clara Bracken and you say something because you think you can rely on that shorthand, except they're there as actors, it can be weird. Mm. Yeah, I put a lot of emphasis on that, treating them both like the star of the movie or the leading lady in the movie. I, I know from working with a lot of actors, just what people need in those situations for themselves to feel comfortable. And that was really my goal as a director was just to give everybody else the comfort and the assurance that the safe was space, uh, the, the space was safe for them to do their best work. Um, you know, sometimes it's a little strange. You, you know each other so well that you can really abbreviate what you're talking about because it's almost like playing charades. You know, you, you 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 can yes. play Pictionary with somebody that you know really well, and they're well, going to get your clue, even if you're. Your well, that's true. Like line. I can I can uh, <laughs> have, no. I mean, on a long running series, you have this too, right? Um, Asia can be working on our show, plays Taylor Mason. Asia can be working, do a take. I can be across the room, and this is true. And I know you know this is true as an actor and now as a director. Asia can I can take one step onto the floor. Asia and I can meet eyes. And they can say, they can, we can literally meet eyes and Asia can nod and say, oh, got it. And then I can turn around and we really haven't even spoken. But Asia knows exactly what the choice they made was and what the other choice I'm looking for is with us just literally making eye contact because we've been doing this now for years together. Well, and and not just that, but the both of you are so deeply invested in what is and is not the character of Taylor. Like you both know where the edges of that character are. So you can both really accurately inform it. Um, I I love, um, and I've told you this, man, but I love the show. I really enjoyed it. And it is is such a fucking, well, cause it's, it's awesome. Both the, the writing and the characters, like I'm, I'm envious of all these actors and also just like, stand up and applaud how incredible these performances are. They're so good. I mean, I just can't even believe how good they all are. It's crazy to get to do this. Goodness gracious, and I don't say goodness gracious, but goodness gracious, does Warby Parker make great glasses. Look, they were founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal. 
to create boutique-quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. I mean, imagine this. These four close friends decided they needed to create an alternative to the overpriced and bland eyewear available today. They realized prescription eyewear shouldn't cost you more than a plane ticket or a new iPhone. They completely changed the entire industry. And you can't change an entire industry unless what you do is excellent and you do it at a fraction of the price the other guys do it. The Warby Parker aesthetic is vintage-inspired with a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom-fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. Available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Look, this is eyewear with a purpose. Almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. That means 15%, check this out, 15% of the global population can't effectively learn or work. That's crazy. Glasses were invented 700 years ago, yet 15% of the population lack access to glasses. We should be on top of this. It's our duty to be. Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. We believe everyone has the right to see. They have a free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses, try them on for five days, there's no obligation to buy. Ships free. Includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com slash moment to order your free home try-ons today. Glass start $95, including prescription lenses. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Blue light filtering lenses are now also available. Hey, you have an iPhone 10? Make sure to download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on eyeglasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. Go to warbyparker.com slash moment now. I have a couple of other things that I want to uh, talk to you about because of the way you've continued to grow. And, and one of them is... What do you think it is, like, what strategy did you employ to continue to grow and improve? Like, so many people who've achieved this success you have, and it's not that they're phoning it in or it's not that they're coasting. It's that they don't, they're, they're just moving from job to job. They're living it. They're, they're doing it. Um, but it seems to me you've made, like, a real effort. And, and what I've said before is uh, without, like, I'm not just talking about saying, hey, I'm going to grow my hair long or, hey, I'm going to wear a certain kind of, it's like, it seems to me like you've constantly worked on improving yourself. Can you just, in, as an artist and as a human, n and not casually, but like with determination. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that and how you've decided to do that and like how you did it? Um, well, it's just a process. And, and it, it's, that, it's that same thing where from the outside, it might look entirely seamless, but on the inside, it has, it's just been hard fought. And I've been, I've been really open about saying that I'm fraught with the same kind of desperate insecurities or um, self-doubt that I think anyone is. I've just, I've come to understand that that's something all humans share and that I can't be terribly afraid of it. Um, and that the real difference between people that last and people that don't is their own determination to get better, to constantly be improving, to not have a huge ego about it, but also have enough uh, confidence to be able to uh, make the audience feel aspirational. Um, it's, it's not been an easy go, um, but I was told 
really early on, by example, that it was always going to be hard, that it was always going to be a challenge. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like, if you, if you just do all the work, you can make it look easy. Um, but it never actually is. It's as as simple as, um, you know, that trick where you can open a beer bottle with a, with a lighter. Yeah. Nobody tells you that that's going to hurt your finger. Right. Like if you're doing it right, your finger hurts. And so you watch people do it and they just flip the top off and it looks so cool. And then you try and do it and you're like, oh, this hurts my finger. I must not be doing it right. But the truth is it's just going to hurt. If you put a little pressure on your finger, you can pop the bottle top off. And so all of the work, it's the same thing. You, it's going to hurt a little bit. (laughs) And, and uh, if you're doing it right, you both make it look easy and don't let anybody know that it hurts. And it's um, worth it, you think. Like, you found that it's worth it, yeah, right? It's worth it, it. It's worth it for you to sort of put yourself through the pressure of changing and growing. Yeah, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And the only way to do that is to continue to evolve. I've looked at anybody that has had a career for their entire life, and it's because they both reinvent themselves and are constantly doing something new that makes the audience say, I want to watch that, you know, as opposed to becoming dependent on a particular trick or a catchphrase or even a style. Um, but I've also, I've always been more attracted to the performing than the celebrity of it. Um, I've always been most satisfied by taking a complicated character, even if the character only has three lines and making them feel like a resonant human being, um, even if it's a farce. Um, I love finding the truth in something and making the audience feel it. That's, that is, that is and my do favorite. Do you feel you're doing that thing. when you're, vo- and you're doing that when you're voice acting too? Yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, the, vo- the voice acting becomes more technical and especially um, when you're doing something that's joke based, there's a, there's a, a mathematic rhythm to comedy that's inarguable and it doesn't have as much yeah. uh, opportunity for, um, innovation, you know, cause there's, there's a, there's a, an algorithm to getting a laugh. And so, you know, there's only so much variance on whatever you're, you're, um, uh, whatever you're putting out, um, before it's not a, a laugh anymore. Um, yes, and so of course. all of the, the voiceover comedy I do is, is think about what's going to be the funniest. How can I, how can I articulate this or express this in a way that it's going to get the biggest laugh on camera? you have a completely different arsenal available to you. It's, it's your whole body. It's your whole presence. It's your, your stillness or your movement. Um, and so they're, they're just a, it's a really different consideration. When, uh, yes, uh, you know, that, that tracks for me. What I was just here, sitting here thinking about is that one of the things when I started the show, the podcast and called it the moment was I'm so, I find moments when, the world is sort of set, the world turns, when suddenly greatness appears, I'm always fascinated with, by whether people knew it, understood it. So did you have any sense, or when did you have a sense that Family Guy was going to be something like kind of life-changing for you? And and uh. that, and not just for you, did you know right away, oh, Seth's a comic genius. This is not you, Seth MacFarlane. I know you wouldn't say that about yourself. Yeah. But was there a moment where you were like, <laughs> no, I know you wouldn't be like, you know what? I'm a comic genius. But no. Well, what if I also talked about myself in the third person? Yeah, that'd be <laughs> sick too. Let me tell you about Seth. But was there a moment 
early on in that thing, like when you first went in, did you know like, oh, holy shit, this is insane. This is crazy. This is going to, or was it when people started to come up to you? Like, can you just talk a little bit about what that all felt like in the, in the beginning? And then when it started to catch on and people started to say your phrase, like, what did all that feel like to you from the, from the, you know, in the beginning? Well, it's a series of moments, actually. I, um, I got that script and I got to audition for that part. And I, it, it was just at a time when there was nothing like that. Um, I think I, I read that script in like 97 or maybe even um, 98, I guess, when we first did it. And um, it was just so funny. And it, it was all this pop culture. It was all of these intellectual musings that, that felt really familiar to me that I thought, I can't believe someone else is expressing this. Um, and I knew very quickly that Seth MacFarlane was exceedingly talented um, and also someone that, that I would get along with really well. But, you know, getting to audition for that and then getting that job, I was thrilled um, just because it was something I wanted so much and couldn't believe I was going to get to be a part of it. But again, it was no surprise to me when after a season um, of being preempted and not being well supported by the network, they uh, produced a second season or, or, or technically a back nine without even having a time slot available. We were like, all right, the writing is on the wall. The show is going to be canceled. And it's, it's, this was fun while it lasted. And, and, and cool you mean that first, so that of. first 12 or however many you did, people weren't like, you weren't already getting people coming up to you on the street, doing the voices to you. It was like no. sort of, no, it was as if it, it was as if it didn't happen. Like, wow. It, and did it, you it, know it was no really to... great? Wait, did you know it was really great? Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. I was like, this is important. <laughs> you did. No, it is. And you, it it, of course. I really yes. did. Yeah. No, it's so groundbreaking. We're, we're off the air and we... <laughs> Wait, so what happened well, with can, the back nine? I got it retrospectively and say, but we, um, uh, the back nine didn't air. I think they might've put it out over the summer, which at the time was like a dumping ground uh-huh. for the main networks. And so I had all of the episodes on VHS and I just watched the, the hell out of it because I thought the show was so funny <laughs> yes. and I shared it with people and I didn't even tell them that I was on it. I was just like, isn't this fun? And then um, uh, the Adult Swim uh, in the end of the 90s, which had just started um, uh, producing its own original programming, they got all of those episodes for uh, Second Window and they showed them as part of their late night block. And in this, you know, 12 o'clock on a Sunday the show started getting millions of views and that made Fox look at it and realize that there might be a marketplace potential for the show that they hadn't considered. It was, you know, three years later, two years later. And um, Fox decided at that point to put the show out on DVD, which was still kind of new in that whole time. And how many episodes had you made at that point? On DVD. Uh, it was, I guess, 22. Oh, but no more. Episodes. You had just done those two, that, that, that sort of full season. And then you've done yeah, like two seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Like under 30 episodes. And, um, they put them out on DVD and it sold a million copies in the first week. And so we did, um, so. and that was really validating. It's like, Oh my gosh, people like this show. And it did such great numbers on adult swim. It was just directly targeted to the, the exactly, right audience. Of course. Um, and we got to do a live uh, reading of a script at the uh, Montreal Comedy Festival. And that was the first time that I felt like, oh, yeah. like it had worked. Because we filled up this house and people knew lines and people were familiar with the characters. And I remember McFarlane and me were like, I can't even believe this is great. So it was just so validating 
you know, because you, you love something or you fight for something or you believe something about something. And it's, it's so improbable for any of it to ever work. It's more likely the audience won't show up than that they'll show up by the millions. Yes. Um, and so Fox made the decision to put Family Guy back on the air and they greenlit American Dad at the same time and they got heartily into the Seth MacFarlane business. Um, and then all of a sudden we're, we're back on the air and it's, it's more successful than it ever had. The right. Then it explodes. So that's place. when you really felt the explosion yeah. happen. Yeah. And, and now we're, we're into our 17th season. Like that just doesn't track for me. I'm so much more used to making things that get canceled, that having something that's become this indelible of a staple is a weird experience. I almost feel a, um, an emotional separation from it. Sure. You know, it's like the, the, like the, the, the pandemonium around the show is completely disconnected to my own experience. How often it. do you go record? Um, uh, like twice a month, depending on, on where they are. But I'll, I'll, you know, when you, when you do this kind of recording, you can accomplish it very quickly. My character sometimes has as few as, you know, two cues in an entire script. So I can, I can read everything for, I'll wind up doing like seven episodes at a time or I'll come in and do pickups or come in and do ADR as they've, as they've written new gags. Right. So it, it, it's always in your life, but it's not, it's not always in your life every, like every week of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like the best job I've ever had. <laughs> I, don't, sure. I don't know any other job that compares to it where I'm getting to make something that I still find very entertaining and and it keeps um, you incredibly, no matter what, it, it's amazing because it keeps you completely relevant in the culture. You know what I mean? Because you're a part of this thing that's so relevant in the culture, hmm. a key part. I have just a, co so. a couple more questions. Uh, what what sure. did, and this is just going backwards, but what did, what did Austin Powers do for you in your career? Was there something in, in doing oh. that and playing that role? Did that sort of like rocket boost you into another place? Or did that get, make you yeah, feel like, okay, absolutely. I have a career? Um, it made me feel like I had a calling card. It made me feel like there was a, um, a touchstone for people to refer to. And it was all in that year. The, when Austin Powers came out on DVD, um, I was made a series regular on Buffy and I got to right. do Can't Hardly Wait. So those three things in that same year uh, changed my entire career. Because I'd spent, you know, the, the whole time up until then, um, being a successful character performer um, and getting to work on, you know, dozens of projects, but without anyone actually knowing me. So I never got really famous for a particular role, which was very helpful because by the time I was in my twenties, I was known in the industry as a dependable character actor, as opposed to having to deal with um, uh, overcoming any uh, stereotyping. Um, Right, but and then you that, had these breakout characters, time. right? And then, uh, and then Scotty's yeah. a breakout character, and then that scene in Can't Hardly yeah. Wait was like the scene everybody talked about, like your performance in that movie, and suddenly you did, you brought, and then the Buffy thing, and then now you're really famous for the, it, it, it <laughs> right? No, then the, the yeah. well, you know, one of my favorite stories to tell in the world is, is, is us being up in Canada in that small town, and everybody's standing oh, in Drumheller, and everybody's surrounding <laughs> you all these girls come out because this was the year after you were regular on buffy and like it's a <laughs> town of 200 and there's like 300 girls there to see you and you're being mobbed and then i see dave and i see vin diesel alone walking down a street opposite 
and that's just timing. <laughs> no, but then we go up to Vin. No, we go up to Vin and we go, and he's he's walking. And I, I'm sure I told you this then, but you might not remember because you were being mobbed, and we were we were all very careful about protecting you. You know, um, especially in that town at that time, there was a lot of stuff going on, and all of us were like, let's make sure Seth's okay. But I was this one time, <laughs> and you know, yeah, once we all came into a bar to make sure you're okay. But we don't tell that story. But one time. So Vin is alone on a street walking and he's got his hands out to the sides and he's kind of like, like as though he's checking the space around him, but he's totally all alone. And Dave and I are like, what's up? What's going on, Vin? And he goes, uh, I, I'm just enjoying this last moment before, you know, I'm completely mobbed everywhere I go. And we were like, wait, what do you mean? And he goes, a year from now, I won't be able to walk down any street without... Just so I just want to get the feeling of being able to spread my arms and, and walk and and, <laughs> and and you know the amazing at the time we looked at each other like wow this guy's nuts but now um, I look at it totally differently I look at it like he looked at what was happening to you and he was like I know I'm going to be a movie star like I'm going to have to deal with yeah. this times ten I better prepare myself he wasn't crazy he was so <laughs> smart that he was thinking ten yeah. steps ahead. Um, yeah, I really love that guy. And I was, I was so glad that um, I was so grateful for that early experience before he had really become Vin Diesel, you know, because I felt like we got a very different side of him. I haven't worked with him since and we've, we've gotten to see each other a bunch. But um, I just the the intimacy of that, agree, like how agree. much we were all really collaborating on that project. And there's a, there's a funny moment um, back when Premier Magazine was a thing and they, they published an article. It was after the first uh, Fast and the Furious, but before Triple X um, and Premier <laughs> published an article and they were talking about notoriously difficult performers. And it was like, you know, uh, Denzel and um, I can't remember who the other guy was, but it was somebody like Cruz. It would never be Cruz because he's like the easiest person to work with. But it was like two gigantic global movie stars. And then they listed Vinny. And I, and I remember saying to him, oh man, this isn't the greatest publicity. Like they've got you mentioned here and they're saying that you're difficult. He goes, yeah, but what a list. <laughs> That's perfect. No, of course. Well, no, I was it's thinking like about, you know, and, and there was this time you were pretty stuff. good at pool and you were playing pool in this bar with a bunch of guys and you were better than them and they were locals and they were tough. And someone came and ran and got me and Dave and they were like, we better get to this bar and protect Seth. And I remember knocking on Vin's door <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, because imagine now in the era we live in. And then I remember me, Vin, Dave and Davoli came running to the bar to protect you. And like, we got you out of there and it was all fine. But like, Imagine today, Vin Diesel, us, and whatever to <laughs> rescue you from the story that that would be. But then we were able to, we were all just so um, under the radar that it was fine. Uh, yeah. And then why did you decide to do the thing on Entourage, which I love so much? Uh, but what, what made you want to do that? And what was the effect in the community? Like, how did you know that was going to be so great for you? as it turned out to be, because it was kind of a um, risk, I think. I, you know, it, 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 we can look back on it and say that it was effective, but at the time, and especially in the time just yes. uh, d during the zeitgeist pop of that show, where, where that really worked against me, I hadn't even thought about it, because I grew up on Larry Sanders and watching like yeah. David Duchovny be deconstructive of yeah. his actual persona, and I just thought it was such brilliant, daring comedy. Um, I've known Kevin Connolly since we're little kids, and I got to 
do Italian job with Mark Wahlberg the year before they developed Entourage. So they had asked, they were asking everybody to come cameo on the show. And um, I'd run into Kevin somewhere and they were like, oh, we got this little bit. So I came and did this gag with him on the roof of the standard. And I, I loved the idea because Kevin and I knew each other. I was like, oh, this is so funny if we're actual enemies. And I tried to think about it. Like, what's the most realistic thing? So if, if, if I'm playing a parody of a movie star, if I'm playing like um, an interpretive performance of a movie star, yeah. I want him to be all of the tropes that you despise about movie stars. I wanted to always be wearing sunglasses. I wanted to always be on my phone. I wanted to be like smiling, but disparaging and, you know, kind of a dick, but in a way that was, you had to say, is that, is that me? Is that somebody else? Yes. And uh, while we were shooting that scene, Doug Ellen saw our interplay and just kept pushing us to go even further and more caustic. And I kind of gave myself the backstory of why do I hate Eric so much? And it was that, you know, Vinny Chase is a movie star and this guy is like his buddy from home that Vinny gives a leg up to and made into his fucking manager. How much respect am I going to have for this kid that sure. isn't even good at the job and is only getting the job because of his movie star buddy. And then Doug added this extra thing of, of like, I think you love his girlfriend. And so maybe you tried to date her when yes. you guys were 13 year olds, when you guys went on like summer camp teen tours, maybe, maybe you've been after her all that time. And so you, you really hate this guy, not just for this bullshit with Vinny, but because he's got the girl that you always wanted. And so they, he pitched me that Vegas episode and I was like, this just sounds hilarious. This just I sounds mean, it like is the so fun. much It fun. is just amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. And I, I, I've often gone back and thought if I had uh, played a character on that show, like if instead of being Seth Green, it was like Bobby Nichols or whatever it was, it would have been, uh, it would have been seen as a different kind of performance, but because, because we were sort of culturally blurring the lines between reality television and narrative television. And because entourage was a, a, a and, and a, 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 like a sneak peek inside the yes. world of movies, everyone sort of thought that that was just the thing. And so I wound up having this experience where an entire new generation of kids, 17 to 25, didn't know me from anything else and only knew me from Entourage. And so I still get people tweeting me, I, I fucking hate you because of how you treated E. They think you're douchey <laughs> Seth Green, not Seth Green. They think that the <laughs> yeah. character is you. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, dealing with the fallout of that for over 10 years. So and you it think it's a net negative, not a net positive? Because to me, it was a net positive because of the, again, you found yourself at the center of a cultural zeitgeist. I, I definitely appreciate that. And it, it maintained my profile to that degree because they mentioned me in episodes that I wasn't in, but they're always talking about me. Like I fucking hate that guy. <laughs> I'm sure he fucked Sloan. What a piece oh, of shit. Seth awesome. Green is my arch nemesis. And so in that way, I thought it was hilarious. Like I'm playing a, a super villain. It's almost like I get to be Kaiser Soze, but because I played my own name, it really blurred the line for anyone that was unfamiliar with me beforehand. Well, let me just say to anyone who's <laughs> listening here as we wrap up that that caricature version of Seth Green on Entourage is like the, the exact opposite of the Seth Green <laughs> that I know, who's generous and kind and giving and um, an incredible collaborator. And his new movie that he wrote and directed, stars in, called Changeland, 
this Friday, June 7th. You can see it in theaters. You can watch it on all the on-demands on cable systems. You can find it on iTunes. And go and support Seth because he's a great artist and a great human being. Seth Green, thanks for being here, thanks, brother. Man. All right, man. It's my pleasure, Brian. I really appreciate it.